You have found the space between art and science. I'm your host, Erica Ruby. In today's episode, we talk about Ars Electronica, an annual festival for art, technology, and society in Linz, Austria. First, we present an episode of Ars Leonardo Cast, a podcast born of the 2018 festival hosted by Kenneth Azarin. In tactile tech style, Kenneth and Don Falnar talk about wicked fabrics and interview Dutch fashion and textile designer Helen van Rees about some of her cross-disciplinary projects on display at Ars 2018. Later, Leonardo's Vanessa Chang introduces the Leonardo Garden Anti-Disciplinary Topographies at the upcoming Ars Electronica Festival in September 2021. Finally, the first ever winner of the Priest Ars Electronica, Brian Reffin-Smith, reviews Lead in Modern and Contemporary Art, a recent title edited by Sharon Hecker and Sylvia Bottinelli. Here is Kenneth Azarin with Ars Leonardo Cast. Hey everyone, welcome back to Ars Leonardo Cast. This is the fourth edition. I'm joined by Don Fellner. She's a familiar voice if you listen to our past episode where we interviewed Sarah Petkus and Mark Koch. Say hello. Hi. <laughs> so, in this episode, we're focusing on e-textiles, wearables, wearable tech. What is this other term that you wanted to toss in there? Um, wicked fabrics. It's a synonymous term that uh, people in this industry are starting to use. Right. Um, it's a newer term. Yeah, they wanted to use wicked fabrics um, instead of e-textiles and wearables or wearable tech to kind of just have a stronger... A, a stronger allusion to the fabric itself and the textile itself rather than it. having it be focused primarily on electronics and tech. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Maybe maybe we'll drop a definition in the, the show page description. But uh, that's the first time I'm learning about this term. Mm-hmm. But I'll make sure to, to learn more about it or teach yeah. myself more it's about it. It's a pretty interesting term to kind of just get other people involved or at least interested in this industry or yeah. in this in this world uh, for people who are sort of more uh, or they, they kind of tend to lean away from the terms e-textile and wearables. Mm-hmm. So this is just another way to bring other people in that may not be interested primarily because of the terminology, which is pretty great. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Wicked Fabrics makes me think of the costume department at the Wicked musical for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, uh, let's roll into the interview. Uh, During Ars Electronica 2018, we were walking the festival floor and ran into Helen Van Rees, who is a Dutch fashion and textile designer. And she had a really cool setup. I remember we came up on her table and were immediately drawn by the kinds of fabrics and designs that she had on display Mm -hmm. that were very versatile and modular. Yeah, I I think part of the reason why it was so alluring was because it wasn't just textile. I mean, it wasn't just like plain fabric or anything. It They actually, she and her collaborators, they actually came up with ways to make certain fabrics like felt or something that is usually a little bit more solid and mm-hmm. and hard and not as flexible. They, they found ways to create patterns out of them so that they do become flexible. Yeah. And it was yeah, so cool. Yeah. I mean, we should probably drop a link yeah, um, to show like exactly what we're talking about because this is 
something that is sort of indescribable unless we know exactly what the process is that goes into it. Right, right. But, I mean, off the top of my head, I remember, like, geometric shapes that weren't that weren't set in stone you can mm-hmm. kind of, they were very malleable you can mm-hmm. move them around and so which is really useful in this world of wearables because yeah. if you want to create functions mm-hmm. within these patterns then that that actually really helps like if you stretch a fabric and have a function happening while it's stretched or while it's contracted then yeah yeah and i yeah. remember she was showing showing us a demo of how her fabrics were stretching and and compressing it yeah. was all very cool it seemed very organic yeah and another um another thing that really drew, drew me in personally was their whole focus on sustainability mm-hmm. because the fashion industry is actually one of the largest polluting industries out there that's true yeah because of just because of the materials that the fashion world is sort of um forced to create with right yeah so the fact that they specifically addressed this address sustainability and the reusability of fabrics is i think really uh really relevant to the new rising world of e-textiles and wearable tech all right enjoy the interview and I'm an independent fashion and textile designer. And for this project, I work together with two researchers at the University of Twente. That's Angelika Mader and Geke Ludder. Angelika is a creative technologist and Geke is interaction designer. So together we have different skills that really complement each other. Yeah, that seems like, uh, you know, just a, a dream team. Yes, so far, it's yeah. Re- yeah, it's really nice to work in this team, definitely. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so tell me, tell me more about uh, what we're looking at here. Right, this is our textile reflexes project, which, as it says, is about textiles. And we use textiles as a way of giving feedback to the user. So we have right. a flexible textile here that changes shape so it becomes bigger and smaller. And it's made out of separate squares that are connected to each other. Yeah, yeah. And by becoming smaller, it can give a push to the user. That's a really like a friendly... Uh, nudge basically. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we want to use that as a way of giving feedback to train so and it's all, to nudge certain yeah. behavior. It's all about the feedback then. It's then. all about the feedback but also about the application of the feedback. Right. Because you need applications to be able to test feedback. Of course, of course. So yes. so you have samples here. One of them is a, a posture coach and the other a breathing coach. Can exactly. you dive more into so maybe how that works. Okay, so for example, the posture coach, it works this way. It's a vest that you can wear over your normal clothing. Mm-hmm. It has two accelerometers at the back, one at the upper back behind the neck, and then one halfway, and it measures when someone is slouching. So oh, once man. it detects a slouch, it yeah. gives a signal to two motors that pull actually the textile back together. So the textile ah, then becomes smaller and the textiles at the back, where is the problem? Yeah. Uh, so you get a little push in the back, a little nudge to remi- remind yourself to sit back upright. That's great. I, I would definitely benefit from something like that. I think <laughs> people I, yeah. think it's a big problem, especially a lot of people work behind the laptop all day. 
Yeah, yeah, uh, totally. So, yeah. And, and the breathing coach, same idea. Same idea, yeah. different applications. So it's right. about that feedback, but then in the context of children with asthma or breathing disorders that can benefit from training a low and calm form of breathing. Very cool, very cool. Um, I guess the next question would be, what inspired this? Uh, is it something personal, or do you know anyone with kind of bad posture or, or irregular breathing, or is it just something that kind of hit you? It's a really funny, organic process, because yeah. as, as a fashion and textile designer, I work on like fashion garments, yeah. and I want to use organic materials. So I came across this felt that's on the table, that's a recycled post-consumer textile. This right here, yeah. Yeah, so they, they, they shred old textiles that are not usable anymore and make it into a felt that's usually used for low-value, invisible applications, such as uh, isolation. But yeah. I want to give it a visible and high-end application because it's actually quite nice. You can see different colors and specs into it that makes it an interesting surface. Yeah, it so looks I, I wanted wonderful. to make garments out of it, but yeah. it's too stiff to use it for garments. I see it. So I wanted to make a solution for that. That's how I come up with this, this flexible textile, this squares. Yeah. Um, and applied it in a fashion context. Right, so, so it's garments. more malleable, more more uh, uh, it's a adjustable passive, it's a passive material but mm -hmm. it can respond to your body shape so if it's in the waist where it needs less space the squares are closer to each other right in the hips for example where it needs more space yeah. they open up more excellent and after i developed that i thought well actually once if we could actuate this this fabric so it can move by itself we can do so much more with it yes and that's how this project started this is really fascinating to me I've, I've, I've been an independent designer for six years now and while studying for lots of years as well then, uh -huh. and then I, I really dived into also the material side of, yeah. of design so my yeah. ideas always start with the textile and then yes. comes the application so right. for me the whole process is very important yeah mm -hmm. I, I love this so you guys take it from uh, the dryer or how do you get the, the, the runoff the, of this material. Uh -huh. yeah. um, this is developed by a research center in. Uh, okay, so, so, so it's then this material we don't make okay. this material. Yeah. But then we make it into that material. Okay. Th this is but how it's used in isolation and, and okay. all that kind of stuff. But then we make yeah. it different. That's an interesting notion, though. Imagine like just being able to grab yeah, that dryer lint and uh -huh. then eventually. After a certain refinement it, it, process, it looks like it, that. Is, it yeah. is similar. Yeah. It's, it's also similar uh, fibers that they use to, to make recycled threads mm -hmm. out of, for example, that vest is made out of recycled denim. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's also cool. the same uh, principle old jeans are shredded yeah. and then made into new yarns. Yeah, because that's one of the biggest problems, I think, of the fashion world. Industry, it's the yeah, waste. They, yeah, it's, it's a huge waste, really. Especially, yeah, I mean, especially when you uh, use a washer, and a, not, not so much a dryer, but the washer, mm -hmm. and the, the little particles, especially if it's yes, more synthetic materials. Yeah, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah, so this is really great. That's wonderful. Thanks, Helen, for your time. No uh, we look forward to, you know, looking more into your projects and, and maybe future endeavors. So great, that would be great. Yeah, let's keep in touch. Perfect. Thank you. In 2021, the Ars Electronica Festival will once again become a worldwide anchor point and will take place physically not only in Linz, Austria, but in hybrid sites all over the world. From September 8th to 12th, Leonardo will be a critical node in the Ars Electronica Gardens, a virtual map that stretches across the planet. Expanding the launch of Laser Lintz, 
Leonardo Laser Garden can also be experienced via the internet as an asynchronous multi-platform consisting of talks, performances, and online exhibitions. Our garden, Anti-Disciplinary Topographies, will host a transnational program gathering our network of artists, scientists, humanists, and technologists from five continents and over 47 cities worldwide. In Leonardo Laser Garden, we take up Ars Electronica's call to foster a new digital deal. Etymologically, deal comes from divide and distribute. Recognizing the profoundly uneven impact of digitization on our world, how the digital deck is stacked, a new deal means redistributing the cards. Our world has, and continues to be, transformed by digital technologies. What began as a tool technology has long become a cultural technology, mediating our relationships with ourselves, each other, our societies, and our environments. Digital tools and technologies do not exist in a vacuum. Their incarnation demands drawing on, even extracting, material, natural, human, and cultural resources. Architecting a new digital deal requires examining the limits and potentials of our existing social, economic, and political frameworks and seizing the reins on redefining our digital realities. In the Festival for Art, Technology, and Society, Ars Electronica aims to redefine and remake the future, rather than accepting that foreseen in the tech company's crystal ball. Invited to co-create a community platform for addressing this responsibility of our time, Leonardo Laser Garden hopes to ignite visionary approaches to social activation and empowerment and serve as a source of analytical, corrective, and alternative thought and action. Animated by this commitment to a new digital deal and grounded in the UN Sustainability Goals, Leonardo Laser Garden cultivates our values of equity and inclusion by elevating underrepresented voices in a wide-ranging exploration of global challenges, digital communities and placemaking, space, networks and systems, the digital divide, and the impact of interdisciplinary art, science, and technology discourse and collaboration. By transcending disciplinary boundaries, our garden, anti-disciplinary topographies, uses concepts and imagery of landscape, architecture, and infrastructure to remap terrain for transnational collaboration. In 2008, the laser program was born in San Francisco out of the belief that an interdisciplinary education provides a deeper understanding of human civilization and helps us engineer a better future. By democratizing interdisciplinary discussion between artists, scientists, philosophers, historians, engineers, humanists, and wider publics, the laser program builds urgently needed creative infrastructure for addressing some of our world's most intractable problems. The pandemic compelled the laser program, like many others, to reconsider its engagement with the local and global, as well as the potential and limitations of virtual platforms for our own new digital deal. The transition from physical to digital spaces provided new perspectives, ways of relating to and interconnecting with our global audiences and engaging with new communities resulting in the expansion of our network. Simultaneously, we've had to confront what it means to reach out to those communities and cultivate new pathways of access. Anti-disciplinary topography cultivates the international spirit of Leonardo and the laser program. 
In five conceptual strands, our program fosters transnational dialogue and celebrates the creativity of a region's cultural environment, marshalling these crucial energies to address issues critical to the long-term viability of our communities and planet. Ranging presenters from Sao Paulo to Vienna, the program Performing New Infrastructures traverses landscapes from the microscope to the rainforest. Through play and experimentation, these sonic, visual, and embodied performances transform sites of crisis into imaginariums of human and non-human coexistence. Including presenters from Helsinki to Mexico City, the program Interbeing Between Complex Systems provokes reflection on the complex web of species, agents, and other beings that comprise our living world. How are humans and non-humans connected? These speculative dialogues, exhibitions, and explorations seek to reimagine the field of interspecies communication at a time of great environmental urgency. Encompassing Auckland, St. Petersburg, New York City, and other locales, the program Architecting Global Communities is a series of conversations and stories rooted in interdisciplinary collaboration, transnational communication, and planetary citizenship. In a spirit of hemispheric transcendence, they aim to develop and fortify planetary communities grounded in social justice. Building on the anti-disciplinary terrain mapped by our vibrant community, the program Future Casting shifts its focus to a new creativity agenda. At a moment of profound need, we issue a call to action to speculatively design for change, envision global futures, and humanize digital culture. Finally, the Garden Gazebo marks the launch of Laser Linz. Hosted by the Interface Cultures Department of the University of Art and Design Linz, this inaugural event will explore artistic and scientific developments for a climate modern future. Leonardo Laser Garden is a collaboration between Leonardo ISAST and the Global Network of Laser Hosts in partnership with the Interface Culture Department, Institute for Media, University of Art and Design Linz. All anti-disciplinary topographies programs will be available during and after the festival on the Leonardo website. Find out more about our program, this year's Ars Electronica, and how to register at www.leonardo.info slash ARS-2021. Thanks so much to Kenneth Azarin and Vanessa Chang for that look back and forward at Ars Electronica. Please check out other episodes of Ars Leonardo cast from the 2018 festival. You can find a link in the expanded episode notes at leonardo.info slash podcast. For Leonardo Reviews, here is Brian Reffin-Smith. Lead in Modern and Contemporary Art, edited by Sharon Hecker and Sylvia Bottinelli. Reviewed by Brian Reffin-Smith. If we imagine an extremely light artwork, in fact one with no mass at all, such as an electromagnetic wave going through a gallery whose presence can only be sensed via a suitable receiver, and juxtapose that to a lead metal sculpture, along what dimensions might we distinguish them? We know that even the densest matter in the universe is not really matter at all, that size doesn't matter, and that life, the universe and everything 
and mysteries all the way down to the Planck constant. Of course, you can fold lead, so perhaps not mass, but presence, made vivid by the contradictory softness, pliability, malleability, able to be hammered into shape. Ductility, well, allegedly, may be compared with a stone. It means able to be drawn out, for example, into wire, and good luck doing that with lead. It's the only really heavy metal most of us encounter. Uh, gold, far heavier than it always looks in bank robberies, but we don't usually have kilos of it to carry. And anyway, noble metals aren't all they're cracked up to be. I've worked with ruthenium, and it's a nasty, ugly metal which makes lead look angelic. Since I'm rather childish, I also enjoyed playing with the ambiguities of the word lead itself. I can almost guarantee that after reading the book, you'll be stuck to spell correctly the past participle of the verb to lead, in the sense of going first rather than the application of lead sheets to a church roof, which latter would of course be leaded. What does a leader look like when your brain is consumed by the metal lead? The punning title of Richard Deacon and Bill Woodrow's 2004 exhibition of wooden lead sculptures called Lead Astray leapt falsely out of the excellent index as lead ashtray, and I thought, no, why not? An actual lead zeppelin would surely collapse under its own weight, or would it? A well-known search engine records the 1977 competition for a helium-filled lead balloon, uh, like which bad jokes go down, you know, where one rolled up a tree and drifted into commercial airspace. I suppose the art world could be divided into those who prefer to read a book about gold in art and those more attracted to one about lead, and you can count me in the latter group. Of those two poles of the alchemical spectrum, lead is surely the more interesting. Its materiality is evident, hidden by no economic aura or meretricious veil. It doesn't shine for long either. At least to British eyes, lead is the colour of solid weather of old pipes. And here the spelling checker suggested old popes, which is clearly lead and magic at work, and it goes on church roofs. Gold is just bling and surface and fool's gold, even if that is iron parietes. Lead is Anselm Kiefer. Gold is maybe Jeff Koons. But poor old Plumbum. No alchemist would try to change gold into it, though perhaps an artist would. Everyone knows how poisonous it is, kids licking lead-based paint or artists, their brushes and so on. But that isn't the metal itself, rather molecules containing it. It exerts an alchemical influence, it's mysterious, and its density seems to suck you in. Lead is its own metaphor, again not weight, but something else. Lead comes with a free gift. Gift in German means poison, by the way, which is that it drags with it an interestingly charged political and social as well as metallurgical baggage, less superficial than Damien Hirst's diamonds on the skull, for example. This could be said of many metals, but lead in particular seems at once banal and special. My earliest encounter with the metal was as an eight-year-old angler, using small lead shot as weights to keep the line vertically under water. The shot was partially split open to take the nylon line like little pack persons, and then squeezed close by biting them. I then experimented with melting them over a Bunsen burner and tossing the liquid metal into water, where it formed fantastic shapes. 
utilitarian, exotic, toxic as hell, able to flower into aesthetic forms. It was all there. There are many different approaches to lead in this eclectic look at the processes, psychology, material and conceptual acceptances and rejections even of what the metal has to offer. There might have been a section by a physical metallurgist putting lead into a wider scientific context, but aspects of this emerge in various of the chapters anyway, especially that on lead's historic transformations by Spike Bucklow. Marin R. Sullivan's chapter on the ultimate fallibility of lead as a vehicle for a new American formal language for sculpture opened my eyes to the mid-20th century work of Herbert Ferber and Seymour Lipton, both dentists turned sculptors. They abandoned lead as a material because it wasn't strong enough, turning to steel instead, as did 20 years or so later Richard Serra and Carl André. Where later artists' work was influenced by the material, Ferber insisted that his ideas influenced the material. I have a suspicion that perhaps lead, uh, too soft, said Ferber, wasn't in the end quite mm, American enough for some artists. One might also ask if their dental activities had any influence on Ferber's and Seymour's work. They had hardly any contact with each other, had no dental practice together, though they both received degrees in dentistry from Columbia. And actually the book is full of such pointers to potentially rich sidetracks, and this is one of its values. Any general topic like modern and contemporary art, poked at with a specific thing such as a lump of lead, will yield new knowledge, insights and problems. The question then is, do these benign provocations arch back into art in some useful, solid way? And in this book, they certainly do. There are also useful notes to every chapter, entirely to the point. One of the very interesting chapters is Geoffrey Weiss's on Richard Serra's early lead splash works. There you have, or would if they still existed, everything. The lightness of a splash, the solidity of lead, the process of melting it from solid to liquid, then the loss of energy as it solidifies. And don't tell me that chucking molten lead at the very fabric of a gallery isn't both art political and satisfying, and yet the splashes were gallery pieces par excellence, becoming literally a part of it as they embedded themselves in the angle between walls and floor, inside for the Leo Castelli show, outside for Amsterdam's Stedelijk Museum. There's a photo of Sarah and Philip Glass, who used to be a plumber, at work on it outside the Stedelijk, both looking as benignly terroristic as Marx Brothers. Though Serra used both casting and splashing in titles, the splash lead does form a cast of the walls and floor shapes and textures. The thought is provoked that even molten metal flung into the air or dropped into water, do you remember granulated zinc from school, makes essentially casts of itself in its own space, which is nice. You could write a long review just of this chapter, which goes much further than I indicate here. Then follows Luke Nesson's discussion of Linda Bengliss's 1975 lead cast of an earlier polyurethane work, itself solidified in a corner like Sarah's work, made in the same year as Sarah was casting or splashing lead, so the plot thickens. Her plastic, she said, was repulsive, but the form isn't. Ambivalences and ironies are everywhere. Who other than the artist would have imagined that lead plus artist or poet could do that? 
Nelson talks of the leadwork's fragility and precarity, a far cry perhaps from Ferber's dissatisfaction with lead as somehow weak. The work is exorbitant, she said, layers upon layers, it's the ideas that are whittled down. Following chapters deal interestingly with our tip of errors, varied approaches to the material and especially what surrounded it for those artists. And then you might sigh with happiness, and there's no space to deal everything here, at chapter headings such as Boys, Alchemy and Duchamp, Two Views of Anselm Kiefer, New British Sculpture and Pragmatics of Lead and so on. The editors have to be congratulated on the eclectic but coherent contents and on choosing people who not only have things to say but who can actually write, not always the case in such collections. Lead may have sat splashed, dull and almost sullen in the corner of a gallery, like an artist come too late or maybe too early at a vernissage, but goodness me, in this book, in a process of remarkable transformation, it becomes a catalyst beyond platinum, a catalyst for thought about process and materials in general. Brian Reffin-Smith is an artist, writer, and musician with degrees and backgrounds in both science and art. He works in areas of zombie theory, cybernetics, and pataphysics, all applied to art, performance, writing, and music. Leonardo Reviews has provided scholarly reviews of books, exhibitions, videos, websites, and conferences since 1968. Reviews are published monthly at leonardo.info reviews. Between Art and Science is a production of Leonardo, the International Society for the Arts, Sciences and Technology. Our editorial director is Erica Ruby. Ours Leonardo cast is produced by Kenneth Azurin. Leonardo Review's editor-in-chief is Michael Punt. Podcast production by Tina Tsuemaka. Our theme music was composed by Wyatt Koish. Visit leonardo.info slash podcast for extended episode notes with more information about our contributors, a list of available episodes, and links to the streaming services where we can be found. Find out more about Leonardo, our publications, and our programs at www.leonardo.info.